you know, the thing is, that's one of the things I hate to reveal this. But the other, but the thing is, when you interview a subject, you want him to feel that he's with a kindred spirit and he's having a personal conversation, not a formal interview. Sure. Yeah. So you always drink. Yep. <laughs> Baltimore Ons is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. You're listening to Baltimore Ons, the home of the all weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. And this is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 93 of Baltimoreans. We've got a fantastic show on tap for you tonight, folks. In just a bit, we're going to chat with legendary sports writer Pat Jordan, whose Sports on Earth article, Curious Buck, was published last week to much-deserved acclaim. It paints a rich, deeply human portrait of the Buck Showalter that few of us will ever meet And among other things, Alan and I were pleased to learn that a not insignificant portion of Pat's unprecedented access to Showalter was bourbon-induced. So, Buck, if you're listening, the next one's on us, buddy. Please, please let us buy you a drink. That would be so much fun. (laughs) And what's that sound, Alan? A double pleasure's waiting for you. Um... Sam, that sounds like the theme music from the Double Mint Gum commercials in the 1980s. Incorrect! The Baltimore Sports Report Network, of which we're a proud member along with our fine sister-wife podcasts, does not possess the necessary license to play that song. (laughs) What you've just heard is, in fact, the Baltimoreans' double interview theme song from the early 2000s. Oh, uh, you understand the mistake, though. Uh, Harmonically, they're very similar. That's right, folks. Episode 93 of Baltimoreans features not one, but two interviews. In addition to Pat Jordan, we'll be speaking with Tim Nguyen. Now, if you've listened to our show before, you know that it was born of a slightly tipsy conversation between myself and Alan in late 2011, wherein we decided that we were so fed up with Peter Angelos that we were going to mount a Kickstarter campaign to raise $400 million in small-dollar contributions from individual fans, thereby allowing us to buy out Peter Angelos and convert the team into a community-owned experiment in direct sports democracy. Crazy, right? As you also know, if you've listened to our show before, for some (laughs) reason we decided to start this podcast instead. But now, Tim Nguyen and his friend Russell Curry have come along to do us one better. In the wake of the Donald Sterling scandal, they've started a campaign on CrowdTilt.com to do the exact same thing with the L.A. Clippers. And as we roll tape tonight at Hootenanny Studios, they've raised $53,382 towards their goal. That goal, unfortunately, is $600 million, so they've still got a ways to go. But if you're inspired after hearing him on the show tonight, we hope you'll please donate whatever you can. Before we get to all of that, however... We'll bring you the segment without which no episode of Baltimoreans would be complete. Indeed, our most popular recurring segment, the Harvey Haddock's Franchise Report. Imagine with me for a moment, friends. It's the bottom of the seventh inning in a tense, late-season matchup between the Orioles and the Red Sox in 1964. (laughs) Harvey's turned in a gritty performance through six and two-thirds innings, and the Orioles are clinging to a 3-2 lead. But now... He's given up a double to Tony Canigliaro, and Carl Yastrzemski stands in with a chance to drive in the tying run for Boston. Harvey leans in to get the sign from Oriole catcher Dick Brown. You remember Dick Brown. He nods his ascent, and he comes set. He kicks and delivers, 
a marine fish most commonly found at depths of 40 to 133 meters and which serves as the key ingredient in a popular Scottish chowder. And Yastrzemski swings and misses, and that's the inning. That's right, folks. Harvey once again deployed his trademark haddock trick, where he throws a haddock (laughs) instead of a baseball to the unsuspecting batter. Yes, sir. That's why they called him Harvey Haddocks. Oh, boy. (sighs) Now, folks, we've come a long way since that fateful night at Branded Saloon, when the unbearable Amstel lightness of being first prompted Alan and I to utopian visions of a more perfect society, where the men and women whose on-field efforts give form and shape to the aspirations of their communities could be rewarded with actual civic bonds instead of an exorbitant salary and an endorsement deal with Old Spice. It takes a long time to record this many episodes, and no one knows that better than the man I'm about to introduce to you, the man who has consistently ended up here at Hootenanny Studios on Tuesday nights by virtue of the whiskey-baited traps I've laid for him low these last 93 consecutive weeks. (laughs) Now, I'm what you might call an aficionado of unnecessarily convoluted traps. Let's just say I like my traps like I like my podcast intros. (laughs) And I'd be lying if I told you that I haven't sampled heavily of the aforementioned bait in the process of putting together my elaborate schemes. The resulting fog which has overtaken my mind, and sometimes gives me the shakes on a weekday morning, occasionally causes me to forget exactly why we routinely sit here and pour our only loosely connected thoughts into these microphones. What is it, Baltimoreans, that binds episode 93 to the 92 brother-husband episodes that precede it? I'll be honest with you, I have no idea. (laughs) Which is why I'm now going to stop talking before another shoddily constructed metaphor slips between my increasingly loose lips, grown sloppy and careless like Adam Jones on a 2-2 count, and instead refer you to my esteemed colleague Alan Smith, who, seeing as the only other souls present in Hootenanny Studios tonight are myself and the cat, is the man most qualified to answer that question. Getting over a low bar there. Alright, the important context of the number 93 is that it is a magical number. Now, any Orioles fan worth his or her salt is well aware of Orioles magic, that hard-to-quantify juge that carries the team through improbable comebacks and late-season winning streaks. They also know that we're in a short supply of that Orioles magic so far this season, which is why it's especially important that the number 93 is of great significance in Thalamia, a religious philosophy founded by English author and occultist Aleister Crowley in 1904. It seems that the number has particular significance in relation to two phrases, do what thou wilt shall be the law of the whole, and love is the law, love under will. Now, when you convert these two important phrases into their Greek numerological antecedents, you realize that they sum up to 93, which is very significant in Thalamia. You see, one of the preeminent texts studying this turn-of-the-century cult is called The Magical Diaries of Aleister Crowley. And I believe that this is where we need to turn here on episode 93 for more information on how to turn around the 2014 season. Because what you might not know, Baltimoreans, is the ways in which baseball has long been associated with the occult. Yes, many of the great dynasties in baseball history can be traced directly back to a particular spell, ceremony, or sacrifice, which gave teams that extra edge in competition. 
take the turn of the century Chicago Cubs, contemporaries of Mr. Aleister Crowley, who had a practice of meeting in the clubhouse at midnight every Sunday during the offseason, where they would strip naked, sit in a seance circle, and hum snatches of the Marseillaise whilst smearing rodent blood in their hair and on their jockstraps. This practice gave them a huge advantage when the season actually rolled around. In 1907, their pitching had a combined ERA of 1.52, and would have continued except for what historians agree was a particularly nasty dust-up with a devil summoning, which left manager Frank Chance blinded and pitcher Mordecai Brown with the actual feet and lower legs of a goat. An example of why it can be dangerous to fly too close to the sun when dealing with the occult, the curse of the billy goat continues to this day in Chicago. And then in the 1940s, the St. Louis Cardinals won three World Series behind the bat of Stan the Man and an illicit ritual involving the venom of certain African cobras to break out of slumps. The venom, extracted by particularly unfortunate bat boys who'd drawn the short straw, was then mixed with pine tar, gunpowder, and marmalade. The slumping player would spread half the resulting mixture on a bat and consume the other half while slowly and methodically intoning, I am a new woman. I am a free woman. I am a whole woman. Better than before. Fast forward again, and the Oakland Athletics and the mustachioed warlock Raleigh Fingers, and you'll see where things got really weird. Not much information has ever leaked out of the clubhouse in Oakland in the 70s, but what myths we do have speak of debauched sexual acts between women and horses, a ritual sacrifice of an entirely fully grown lime tree every new moon, and a giant obsidian monolith in the visitor's clubhouse that filled all who gazed upon it with a deep sense of unease. Only after a young priest, an old priest, and a team of elite commando barbers were dispatched by the commissioner of baseball in 1979 to shave the mustaches of the swinging A's did something resembling parody finally return to baseball. The stories are many, but none might be more tragic than the simple mistake of Orioles magic itself. Once a fairly commonplace spell in baseball, it went on an unfortunate 15-year hiatus in the late 90s and into the early 2000s due to an international shortage of ground albatross bone. Inexplicably, Mike Hargrove once tried to replace this very important ingredient with Old Bay, a mistake which is widely blamed for the Adam Lowen, Corey Schaefer, Walter Val Majewski draft in 2002. Deep cuts here on Baltimore on people. During that first round in 2002, we whiffed on Matt Cain, Cole Hamill, Zach Greinke, and Prince Fielder, all of whom were selected later in the first round of that very draft. This, if nothing else, should explain why we're responsible for plumbing the magical depths of the number 93 here on today's show. And may I say, it's about time. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Harvey Haddock's Franchise Report, where each week we take the most pressing news items from Birdland and beyond and assign them an objective quality score. Item number one, MLB Trade Rumors reports that the Orioles are still in touch with main man Kendris Morales. Now, if we consider that Matt Wieters is the only Oriole besides Nelson Cruz swinging a bat at all right now, what ranking would you give the potential to bring in Morales? As you make your decision... Please keep in mind my proposed Kendris Morales nickname, which is, well, it's actually more of a nickname. Why don't you tell me your thing first, <laughs> and I'll stop being an idiot. 
The nickname for Orioles Park at Camden Yards, which would be the Morales, Morales Palace. Palace. Sure. I mean, that for me is the only high point of a potential Morales signing. Okay. Uh, I would give this a um, a particularly witty uh, sign heckling the oppo- opposing first baseman held above the first base dugout. Uh, <laughs> it's totally irrelevant. Given that we have... Um, Cruz and Delman Young, both of which we'd rather not play in the field at any point. We had to, given that. Oh goodness, no! <laughs> I mean, they're they're going to end up in the field, but neither of them are particularly uh, plus defenders. Um, and given the fact that uh, Morales doesn't really have a position, he's not quite David Ortiz, but he doesn't really have a position that he fits that isn't already occupied by Chris Davis. Um, he's only a bat. And he would also have to shake off a lot of cobwebs f- to become a relevant bat. Uh, and I don't think that right now it's worth it to sign him and bring him on. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I am going to I'm going to give Kendris Morales a rosin bag uh, because I think he <laughs> is a meaningless. Well, I think he is pouch shaped. <laughs> And I also think that he is a meaningless topical solution to a much deeper problem, <laughs> which is <laughs> to throw the basket, the baseball. Yes, uh, you know, most of the time, if you're a pitcher, uh, the difference between being able to carry your breaking stuff and work off your fastball is not a little bit of powder on your fingertips. It's a little bit more time with the pitching coach. And maybe a correction to your mechanics. Take a second to refocus yourself. Exactly. If we, in fact, lose Weeders and then sign Kendris Morales, it makes us feel better for five minutes. And then we realize all the things you just said. He doesn't really have a position on the team. He ends up taking up a roster spot that could probably be better used with by Dan Duquette with the AAA taxi squad that we've seen so many times over the past couple years. It's going to be really tempting for all of us to do a one-for-one swap with Weeder's bat uh, should we lose him, which, again, hopefully we won't. But I would just like to caution myself and along with myself, all of our listeners, to think (laughs) back on all of the uh, injuries and losses that seemed devastating to us in 2012 and 2013 that actually we were able to spin into something very positive. And there's there's obviously an endless list of those. There's the Marcakis wrist injury. There is the Koji Wahara trade. I mean, there are so many th- opportunities that are created by adversity. And ah. I think Dan Duquette has proved that he's a master of those situations. So if it does happen, I think to the deepest degree we've had to call ourselves to this task yet, we're just going to have to trust Dan and Buck to find a way to muddle through. Catastrophe. Catastratunity. Alan Smith, that is your second potential title of this week's episode. The first one, uh, what was it? Commodore Barbers? Uh, Commando Barbers. Commando Barbers. Sure, sure. And uh, the an second elite one is core. An elite core. All right. Well, this is all too depressing for words. Let's lighten the mood a little bit. Gene Machi, a middle reliever for the San Francisco Giants, is tied for the National League lead in wins. He's sitting right now at 5-0 and with a glittering .53 earned run average and a .88 whip, but he's only pitched 17 innings. Sam, how would you rank the Machi experience so far? I would rank the Machi experience as um, the steroid-inflated stats of Gary Matthews Jr. in, <laughs> I believe it was 2006, which is to say... It's, it's glaring, but it's distracting us from the real issue. Uh-huh. 
Uh, and what I mean by that is I think what the Gene Machi experience, as you call it, uh, <laughs> which would also be an excellent name for a progressive rock ensemble. True. So many of those uh, when we start talking about baseball player names. <laughs> um, what I think it's done is it's it's continued what has already been a very important conversation about the wins statistic. Right. Obviously, anybody who follows baseball statistics knows that those in the sabermetric community and the advanced statistical analysis community feel like the win is a useless stat. Some of your more old school hardliners, your Joe Angels, your Fred Manfreds, your Jim Hunters, your Gary Thorns, your Jim your, Palmers. Your uh, upcoming guests on Baltimoreans, Pat Jordans. Yes. Uh, feel as though the win is actually some kind of empirical marker of a pitcher's ability. I actually think well, neither one is true. Yeah, I, I would argue that the old school folks don't necessarily think it's an imperial marker of the uh, empirical marker of, of a pitcher's ability, but rather think that what matters is who wins the games. So we should judge people on whether or not their team won when they stepped onto the rubber. I think that's true, but I think they also. I, I what I hear them saying when they talk about wins is that it's somehow a measure of a pitcher's toughness, mm. or his ability to to um, will his team on. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I I actually think neither one is true. I think what a win measures is a pitcher's skill level relative to that of his team and right. how well his set of skills is matched to that team's set of skills. Right. Um, which is important, but it's much more subtle. So Cliff Lee. Um, only won six games for the Phillies last year, I think mm -hmm. in 30 starts, but all of his peripheral statistics were excellent. So that means that Cliff Lee's pitching skills were far above the uh, offensive skills yeah. of the Phillies. Yeah. However, what it also tells us is that the games that he won, he won almost entirely via pitching. Yeah. He didn't get lucky <laughs> on defensive plays. Right. Uh, he got an old school... An old school win in the sense that he actually got on the rubber and won the goddamn day game for yeah. the Phillies. He threw a lot of innings. He didn't yeah. walk anybody. He kept the ball in the ballpark. Right. Um, versus somebody like, for example, Chris Tillman, who I think uh, is an excellent pitcher, but is somebody who pitches particularly well for the Orioles because he knows how to pitch to the defense that's behind him. Sure. And that defense is elite. Yep. And I think we've seen in the early going this season that when he tries to use his fielders and the fielders are not the ones he's accustomed to having out there, he struggles a little bit. Right. 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 Well, I'm not going to I'm not going to agree uh, disagree with you much in in terms of substance here. I'm going to give the five wins that um Gene Machi has managed to to stack up a bat flip a particularly impressive bat flip from Yasiel Puig after smoking a home run. Because I think that the important thing is that this dude, who is not a particularly well-known guy, is pitched to a .53 earned run average and a .88 whip over 17 innings, which by any stretch of the imagination is a pretty good start to the season. So, you know, Mazeltov on being a very good middle reliever and doing your job very well, that's impressive. The five wins doesn't really mean anything one way or the other, um, but that's it, it is it is a statement that he is doing a very good job of pitching um, when he's out there. All right. Well, speaking of intangibles, we are about to jump on the line with Pat Jordan, who is a legendary sports writer who recently lent his pen to the digital pages of Sports on Earth for an article about Buck Showalter, a very in-depth character study of the man in whose hands we place so many of our emotions every summer. 
He joined us on the line to talk about that piece and a few other things. That's coming up in just a moment. So our first question for you, Pat, is when the media talks about Buck Showalter, what do they uh, miss? Oh, uh, the best way I could describe that is they miss a ton. Okay, <laughs> okay. I, I knew nothing about Buck other than what, like any, not even a fan, because I was never a Yankee fan, I'm not an Orioles fan. I didn't know anything about him, but I always thought he was a sarcastic, caustic, grumpy guy, you know. Uh, you know, the kind of guy, if I, when I was a player, never wanted to play for. Right. And that's what I had. Well, anyway, I did a story on Gerald Madden with the Rays a couple of years ago and asked him who he admired. He said, oh, I love Buck Showalter. <laughs> so I said, now, Joe is an easygoing, laid-back guy. He's not. So I said, cheesy, why? He said, why? He said, he's a good guy. That's all he would say. He's a good guy. He said, you want to talk to him sometime. <laughs> so I, I had that in my mind. And believe it or not, when I wrote in the story that I saw a picture of Buck with his dogs, mm-hmm. right. that's what triggered it. I saw this picture and I said, "Oh, I, I, I should have been doing Buck." <laughs> so I, you know, I, you know, I got the assignment. I went out there. <laughs> I had more fun with Buck. He, it, the first day he was a little, he was cautious, and nervous. Yeah. But the second, the second day he was fun. And uh, I mean, he, he was confident. He said, "Oh, don't use that. I'll get sorry. Don't use that." <laughs> <laughs> what What is he hiding that from exactly? Why would we not want to get that out there? Uh, I, I just think he's not used. To, I mean, first of all, you got to remember he got his baptism in New York with Steinbrenner. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I mean, where you where you can't you can't uh, raise your eyebrow the wrong way that that eight million people aren't screaming at you. So I mean, it's not like he started in Arizona or, or you know some place you could start quietly. So yeah. I think that might have gotten geared him up to Jesus. You, you got to keep your mouth shut and don't say the wrong thing and all that. But that's not his nature. I yeah. mean, Buck's nature is to blurt it out. <laughs> so he and learned. Uh... Now, yeah, he, I think now that he's older and he's in a better market, Baltimore or you know, blue collar town. I always think of Baltimore as a blue collar town. I just think he's probably more relaxed now. I mean, I love the story that. He asked one of his young players, uh, told him about Frank Robinson. The kid didn't know who he was. Yeah. yeah. He made him write a book report. Frank <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so you, you started off by saying that he was someone, you know, your, your, your thought about him from afar was a guy you didn't want to go play for. I really got from your yeah. article that, that some people still felt that way. Your anecdote about a guy in Kansas City who was like, you hire Buck yeah. and I'm going to demand a trade. Do, do people just not get him? I think a lot. Of, I think it's half and half. Half of the people don't know him, like I did. Right. And so they had a misperception of him, misunderstanding of him. When they got to know him, they would have fun with him. And then the second half is they really don't want to play with a guy who's always on their case. Like if right. you don't run out of routine ground ball and he shows you a video of you jogging the first base after, <laughs> you know. I mean, that wouldn't bother me. I tell you what, the first game I one of the first games I ever pitched in the minor league. In McCook, Nebraska, I was a real hot dog, you know. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I was a pitcher, and I hit a, a ground ball, and I ran it out. And on the way back to the dugout, I took my hat off. Hopefully, the one of the farm girls would see how pretty I was if he waited for me after the game, right? <laughs> what I didn't know was that our, our scout, our minor league scout, Bertie Tebbets. Bertie Tebbets was a hard-nosed catcher. 
for the uh, Cincinnati Reds for years, and basically he was an earlier Carlton Fisk. Uh, uh-oh. So he put you <laughs> yeah, right in your place. So he's called me after the game. He goes, in the locker room. He put the blast on me for being a hot dog. Oh, no. Showboat. Oh, God. I never. I wouldn't take my hat off in the shower after that. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I experienced that kind of guy, and it didn't, didn't hurt me. Sure. I mean, I paid attention. He was good. I was right. Well, that's another of my yeah. favorite uh, anecdotes from your piece is that you say, uh, partway through last season when the Manny Machado uh, fame train was right. starting to pull out of the station, Buck pulled him aside uh, when he had a gaggle of admirers, I guess, around his locker and said, would right. you want to be in a foxhole with these guys? Um, right. Which I thought was very, very striking language from a guy who has really had to fight his whole way up. Right, absolutely. I mean, and plus, you have to go back to Buck's father. He ends up his father a lot. I mean, uh his father, I mean, he made him walk to school, even though he drove to the same school that Buck. He was the principal at the high school that Buck went to, but he wouldn't drive in there because he didn't want to show him favoritism. He made him walk. That is yeah. such a and, classic story with the hot right. potatoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he said it's cold out. He said, there's two hot potatoes. Juggle those on the way. That's almost, <laughs> like, a, that's almost like a cliche hard-ass dad. Right. That's, that's amazing. Oh, yeah. But he was... And I guess, but Buck loves the hell out of this guy. He always brings him up, like my father used to say. You know what I mean? He just emailed me something today. He said, my father used to say, change is not only the disrespect for tradition. Yep. We were, mm-hmm. we were talking about uh, 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 another manager who was very innovative. Who, he happened to be playing tonight. Uh-huh. Say no more, them. say no more. Yeah. <laughs> and I emailed both of those guys today because I, I'm crazy about both of them. And I said, who do I root for tonight? The white bread of my guinea paisan. (laughs) (laughs) Because Joe Madden is really Joe Joe Maddenini. You know that? No, I did not know that. No, Joe's a closet Italian like me. (laughs) (laughs) What's your your real name? Giordano. Ah, okay. Okay. It was my father's name. My father was Pasquale Giordano. And he changed it four days before I was born, so I would be born an American kid with wow, an American see. name. I you see. Know? Wow. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so Joe is my paisan. I love Joe. <laughs> but I love Buck, too. So now yeah. I tell him I have, I'm conflicted. Who do I root for tonight? The white bread or the guinea? I said, <laughs> so Joe emails me back. Then Buck emails me back. And I said, well, i got to root for the Rayos. The Rayos. <laughs> I said, I'm the only guy who's got to be happy and miserable. Yeah. Right. At any point in the game. Uh, those two guys are great. Buck is a great guy. He's very smart. Really got that out of your article. Really, yeah. I mean, that, that really sort of came came out. Yeah, he's not a detailed freak. Like, they paint him as like a this uh, obsessed guy who's obsessed with... A lot of guys who are obsessed with details are guys who, paint, who don't know the big picture. No, no, no. Buck sees the big picture, and he sees that the details are a part of it. Yeah. Well, so that actually that actually leads into our next question a little bit. One of the most striking parts of reading your article was how different the tone of your piece is from a lot of the sports writing that dominates the conversation these days, most of which tends to be a lot more focused on advanced statistics. I'm not into that. Yeah. 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 Listen, I'm an old school guy. Yeah. Somebody asked me about why didn't you get into more about Buck's manager? I said, I don't care about him as a manager. I said, I care about him as a person. Absolutely. Right. I don't write so, look, when a, when a guy is, has a proficient, is proficient in something, hits a baseball, acts in a movie, manages a baseball team, shoots a basketball, 
a well-known. My interest is to show the public who this person is in real life. I'm not there to show uh, exactly how he throws his jump shot right. or all his uh, brilliant maneuvers through the game. I don't really care. My interest is whoever I do, I want to show the world exactly what kind of person he yeah. or she is. Well, that, and I, that's all I care about. I have to say, that was a really refreshing factor in your article because, you know, it's really popular in a lot of sports writing these days to dump on quote-unquote intangibles. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I think if you're a baseball fan, it's the intangibles that make the game unique. It's That's the reason that there's 30 different teams and not just a giant simulator that spits out the results at the end of the year. But, uh, see, I don't even know what sabermetrics are. I don't know what whip is. <laughs> I don't even know that stuff. I, mean, I love I have it. I love all it. These kids. I'm not a fan of the Bill James stuff. Right, right. You know, I mean, it's, it's like, like Joe Madden, who's got a reputation for being a guy who loves those computer printouts, sure. yeah. uh, went up to take a Balfour out of a game the other day because he was facing Big Copy. Whom he hit, who big coffee hits him pretty good. Right. And Balfour wouldn't come out. He said, I, get, I got this guy, Joe. I know I can get this. <laughs> the last out of the game, so Joe left him in. Yeah. Yeah, you got he, he got him out. You got to be you able know? to look around those uh, numbers and look at, and look yeah, at yeah, the guy's yeah. confidence and where he is in the game and what's going on. So would you say, you know, because obviously Joe Madden, I would say more so than almost any other manager, has a reputation for being a guy who really, yeah. really sticks to the numbers. But in your right. experience of the man and spending time with him, is that that's clearly not how he makes all his decisions, right? No. Uh, I mean, Joe and, Madden, Joe, Madden and Buck are very similar. They always evaluate what the person is. Like they both said, he's a good teammate, he's a good guy, when they refer to a player that they like. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And in, in their minds, that is indicative of if he's a good teammate and he's a good guy, that means he's a good player for my team. Back to the foxhole I mean, like, idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know Buck's team as much as I know Joe's team. I mean, like Price is supposed to be a great teammate. Jamie mm. Shields, formerly there, was supposed to be a great teammate. Yeah. You know? Uh, uh, Sabathia for the Yankees is supposed to be a great teammate. You know, the kind of guy who uh, will give up uh, five runs in the first inning and still hang in there to pitch seven in. Right, right. Uh, Joe and, and Buck both like the same kind of guys. In reading your article, I was a little struck by the fact that Buck has this reputation of sort of always the bridesmaid, never the bride, um, in right. terms of getting these teams close and then not being able to be around to finish the deal. Right. Has he um, changed something in his approach in in that to give me uh, some hope that he's going to seal the deal with the Orioles? I mean, I don't think I don't think always being the, uh, the bridesmaid, never the bride, is Buck's problem. <laughs> I think it's a problem of of the guys who hire him and then get rid of him just when he's about to win. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I really believe that. I mean, he made a great team with the Yankees out of nothing, a souffle, out of these kids in cast-off. Paul O'Neill was not... Paul O'Neill is going down in history as one of the great gutsy players in the game, but he got they got rid of him in Cincinnati because he couldn't get along with anybody. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, who's the third base of the Red Sox? uh uh, that went to the Yankees also. Oh, Boggs, Boggs. Boggs, great Boggs. So, I mean, they, they were kind of cankerous guys that nobody wanted. Mm-hmm. And Buck was able to deal with them, yep. you know, and then you got the young kids. No, 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 no. He, 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 when he builds these teams, you know, he's like the uh, trophy wife. You know, they love him for, for whatever reason, yeah. and then two or three years later, they get rid of him for the same reason, and he's confused, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So what you're saying is that I should just take your article and mail a copy of it every day to Peter Angelos's desk so he knows to oh, stick yeah. with Peter Buck for another couple of years. Oh, well, yeah, Peter's got a gold mine there with Buck. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, plus, I mean, maybe, uh, I'm sure that 20 years ago, Buck may, Buck may have been a little bit more acerbic for these. Yeah, you know? sure. But so, who the hell was it when they were a kid? Yeah. <laughs> you know, True. I mean, somebody stepped on my toes when I was 35 years old. I wanted to hit him in the head, too, you know. <laughs> so I think Buck maybe has has grown into his, uh, not old man status, because he really is a young kid. But, you know, into the old the old man who's been around the block, so you listen to him. and Sure. I, I think that's great for him. And I, I can't imagine Peter could get anybody more devoted to... Uh, yeah. Winning in Baltimore than Buck. We have uh we have one more very important question for you, Pat, before Uh-oh. we before we let you go. Which is, is we call this a getting on the airplane question. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, getting but, on the airplane yeah, question. But you gotta when you're going up on, on the gangplank there right. and you yell out to the subject, by the way, <laughs> yeah. is it true you have three mistresses and yeah. your wife is divorcing you? <laughs> how did you how did you guess how did you guess our last question? <laughs> Well, I know, but I'm too old. You should have asked me this 20 years ago. I might have had an answer. <laughs> no, it, it is very clear from your article that you are a bourbon man. Um, Sam and I both also fancy ourselves bourbon men. So my question for you is, what's your label of choice? Oh, Jim Beam Black. All right. Very nice. <laughs> classic. Didn't even a have classic. to think. Didn't even have to think. Jim Beam Black. I just had three of them before you guys call. That's, <laughs> that's, so that's, that's why I'm so charming on the phone right now. Hey, that's... <laughs> what, uh, are, what are your names again? You are listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. And this over here is Alan Smith. Here's a fact, morons. Not a day goes by without me thinking about the ways in which we could improve the model by which we do professional sports ownership in this country. But joining us now is a man who's actually doing the thing that I spend a lot of my time thinking about. His name is Tim Nguyen, and he and his friend Russell have started a campaign on CrowdTilt.com to purchase the Los Angeles Clippers. Not a big deal. They only have to raise $600 million through $10 and $20 donations. Everyone have your credit card out? Fantastic. Let's begin. Tim, welcome to Baltimoreans. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Just we... so you know, uh, every time a donation comes in, we'll be ringing a bell. <laughs> <laughs> Which won't make any sense because this is not live. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tim, we, we love this idea. Uh, just love it. Tell us how you came up with it, and tell us why it's going to work this time out. Last Sunday, making a smoothie, and the idea just kind of crept into my head. Threw it away all day until the nighttime, and I talked to my wife about it, and uh, we're like, you know what? Heck, why not? Let's give it a shot see what happens. And caught up uh, Russell and a couple other people. They thought I was equally as crazy, so we said, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> You never know what's going to happen. Let's go ahead and do it. Worst case, we'll make some make a statement and get some discussion time. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it certainly seems like uh, you've you've achieved that latter goal. You guys have gotten uh, a really significant amount of press. Fast Company, Time Magazine, uh, among others, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. Locally, we got on uh, ABC, NBC, and even KTOA. 
just to take a step back for a second, we, you talk about starting a conversation around an important issue. Uh, when you look at the Donald Sterling scandal, what, what questions does it bring up for you as both a Clippers fan and as a sports fan? You know, it, it's really about being in touch. You know, we feel that Donald Sterling is just out of touch of his constituents. <laughs> you know, sure especially is. here. <laughs> Especially here in Los Angeles, you know, the cultural makeup is very diverse. Uh, now, I um, was under the impression that you were all raging racists. Is that not the case? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the whole idea here is, you know, Donald Sterling is who he is. You know, he's 80-something years old. He comes from a totally different era. And as far as us, as we're concerned, you know, it, it's a new age. It's time for no more Donald Sterling, like you say, Alan, in your article. It, it, it's not just about the racist part, either. Although that's a uh, starting point, it's really about you know when does it become a billionaire's toy? Yeah, you know yeah. this is a this is for the fans, and we want to see be back with the fans for the community, where um, we can go root for the home team, uh, make some money as an organization, and give it back to the community. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about that last piece. Uh, what's your what's your model for where you think the the uh, rerouting in the community actually ends up happening? Yeah, so you know the Clipper organization would run just like a normal business, whether it's a nonprofit or a corporation. It has to run profitably. Sure. The profits at the end of the day normally would go to Mr. Donald Sterling, and he could do whatever he liked with it. But if it was owned by the people, a community, those profits would be um, paid out. You know, quote unquote dividends. We'll give it back to charities that um, you know do things that the fans approve of, that the fans care for within the local community. So, you know, the idea is real simple, that the money that you spend is power. And, right. you know, the most important thing we can do now is really get people thinking about where they spend their money, who they spend it with, and what it actually means to them and their community when they make a purchase every day. And do you think there's something in particular about something like a basketball team or a professional sports organization taking on this community-owned model that has the that has the ability to kind of get people's attention and maybe change people's minds about the way things like this exist in this country? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, a, a sport, you know, all of us, we grew up playing sports, right? The most most majority of us, you know, from Little League to uh, NJB, National Junior Basketball. Some of us college. quite poorly. <laughs> <laughs> but we do it very well, right? We do, do poor very well. Right, you right, know, right, right. It, it's just, um, you play the sport that you love, you know. I don't know about you, but whenever I play, I go out there and I wish I was uh, – you know, Chris Paul or Blake Griffin. I go out there and I play and I imagine. And it's a lot of fun. You build camaraderie out of it. You meet new friends. Right. You meet people you never would have met, you know, otherwise. It's just awesome all the way around. So why not take a vehicle that has so much positive energy and teaches all of us so much and turn it to something even greater than that? Okay, let, let me let me just assume for a second that we've succeeded, all right? We've got the $600 million in the bank. Clipper Clippers or the NBA has forced Sterling's hand uh, and they've agreed to sell to you. Now let's fast forward to a point where let's let's pretend for a second we've got the board in place and they're listening to you. We're going to go through a little bit of uh, of important positions that Sam and I see as vital to the Clippers going forward, and we want to give we want you to give us sort of your best guess for who you think should occupy these positions. Um, we're also going to throw a couple options out there for you to consider, some of which may or may not be entirely serious. So, Tim, if you got to choose. Who would you have as the sort of president of basketball operations, the general manager role that you were describing before? You know, I would love Magic Johnson. That's a good choice. Bring him on board. He's all L.A. Yep. 
Yep, basketball pedigree. It's all there. He could continue his rivalry with Larry Bird from from L.A. and from uh, Indiana. It'd be fantastic. Also, if he's half as good at running a basketball team as he apparently is at building a successful baseball team, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I like I like the idea of of Magic Johnson, um, and I think I think that that's a good choice. Have you considered putting Doc Rivers into that role, just promoting him on up the ladder? No. Um- Here's my reason, and again, what the heck do I know about running a basketball organization, right? <laughs> sure. But, you know, he, he's a coach, and he's doing a damn good job at it. He is. And you can't, it's difficult to be a manager and a coach at the same time, right? How do you play a game that you're also managing? Sure. They're really two separate roles, two different perspectives. So, Sam, do you have any, uh, as a non-basketball fan, do you have any suggestions we should pick up for President President General Manager here? Well, I would say even with the caveat that I don't know a tremendous amount about basketball, uh, it would be hard to argue with my selection, uh, which would be Cal Ripken Jr., uh, <laughs> Hall of Fame shortstop and third baseman for the Baltimore Orioles. Um, mostly because I would like him to be in charge of a professional sports team. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's going to be the Orioles anytime soon. <laughs> I had this this pipe dream that it was going to be the Orioles, but if Dan Duquette and Buck Showalter uh, continue to do such a damned good job of it, there's not really going to be a groundwell, groundswell of support for Cal, so... I think it's going to have to be the Clippers. I apologize to the basketball fans out there. <laughs> okay, so we have other important roles we need to fill here. So if we've got Magic Johnson as president of, of basketball operations, do you have a guy in mind for a, uh, a head of scouting, someone who you trust in the world of, uh, of basketball, you, who you like their eye for player development and talent? Well, I mean, if they don't have to have basketball experience, I'd say Hugh Hefner would be a great scout. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> interesting california ties <laughs> you also uh, no. you've stolen the answer from the non-basketball fan oh uh, no, no that's actually, okay I, I got a, i got a fallback option <laughs> what about you smith who would you go with well uh i personally have a huge crush on steve kerr so if he doesn't end up getting hired by the Knicks, I think that he's your man for uh, for and he he's also somebody who seems to have a good head on his shoulders when it comes to how uh, the sports world works. So I think he's the kind of guy who would get off on getting to go work for the first community owned basketball team in the in the country. Uh, well, since Hugh Hefner is off the table, I'm going to go with Larry Flint. Um, <laughs> but yes. stick with me now. This is not merely a frivolous tossed off answer uh, because for one thing. If you're if you're going to be putting a new team together, you're going to need some cheerleaders, and I think Larry <laughs> Flint is probably in a at least a somewhat decent position to source those. Right. Uh, number two, Larry Flint, for all of his smut peddling, also has a very strong track record of being a fan of sort of disruptive political ideas. Um, he's <laughs> That's been true. a huge proponent of first First Amendment issues, among other things. So I think in a weird way, this might actually be the sort of project that he would get excited about. Unless he steps in and ends up defending Donald Sterling to the death. Yes. <laughs> we that that is a pitfall. That is a pitfall. <laughs> okay. We have another position we need to fill here. Um, and this is the, 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 the position of the owner emeritus. So in New York, that position with the Knicks is filled by Spike Lee. He's always courtside. He's always sort of very uh, uh, visual, visibly there as a fan. 
the Lakers have Jack Nicholson as their uh, always their courtside presence that makes all of the uh, the background shots and big plays. So, Tim, if you were going to source one person to be our our new Clippers emeritus, the guy the guy or gal who shows up at these games and is publicly present, who are you going to pick? Oh man, he's already there, Billy Crystal. Wow, oh, Billy Crystal. Yeah, he's a Clippers guy. Yep, yep. I he's didn't there, realize uh, that. He's been going for like. 20 years or something. Oh, man. You should hit him up for a donation. Yeah, he's probably good for a couple bucks, huh? <laughs> yeah. How do, we, how, how do we get in front of Billy Crystal? I, mean, I feel like between him and Oprah, we ought to be able to, to oh, so get some stealing, dollars moving You're here. stealing my uh, <laughs> my courtside oops, person. <laughs> oops. I hefnered you. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would go with Oprah. I think the, uh, the appropriate response to the Donald Sterling era would be a black woman. Uh, and having her be visibly courtside, even if she doesn't give... A rats about basketball would be hilarious and probably come with a $500 million check to help us get a little closer to the goal. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, see, these are all very good ideas. Uh-huh. And I feel like uh, anything that I say is going to seem uh, like it is somehow um, making light of this process. So I'll just say the most ridiculous thing I can think of, which is SpongeBob SquarePants. Spongy, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so for the last question here for you, um, let's get into a little bit of actual basketball fan talk here. If you if you could improve this team, Tim, if you go out and get somebody for next year, who do you think is the, the one missing piece, the one free agent acquisition that could really help you all out? You know what? I, I think we need uh, another wingman. Okay. You know, Dudley was supposed to fill that row, but he's been – he hasn't – I don't think he's been worth the contract that he's been paid. Uh, Redick is really stepping up, so someone to kind of give him some backup. Um, a nice wing man that could pop that uh, 20-footer consistently. Yeah. That's what I would go after. Yeah. We have such a strong front court. Back court's pretty solid. Uh, but someone that just pop that 20-footer again and again, 12, 14 points a game, that would be a good one for me. That sounds good. A big athletic somebody who can uh, who can defend the other guys two or three. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss out somebody who I think is going to be available in the next couple of days. Um, Omar Ashik of the Rockets. Because I feel like... DeAndre Jordan is clearly the go-to guy. He's the he's the he's the guy who who makes the defense work. But if you had another six fouls and a really good big defender back there to sort of clogs things up when Jordan gets in foul trouble or you have to take him out because he can't make free throws, I think Ashik would be a really good big guy to kind of just gum up the works in there for you. Yeah, seven foot. Yeah, he he foot that bill for sure. Well, uh, I'm going to say, you know, first off, I just want to thank you guys because I've learned a tremendous amount about basketball <laughs> during this segment. Uh, and I'm starting to pick up on context clues. Earlier, you mentioned uh, three pointers. And I intuitively <laughs> get that that means a shot that's worth three points. There you go. There you go. We're, we're bringing you along, Sam. Now, you've also mentioned a court. <laughs> I happen to know that no court is complete without a judge. Okay. And that's why I think you should target Judge Judy <laughs> for your last, for your free agent pickup. Interesting. I think Interesting. she could be a difference maker for you. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> that sounds good. All right. Well, Tim, thank you very much for, for joining us this evening. Uh, everyone should go check out By the LA Clippers. You can find it on Crowd Tilt, which is the place that, uh, Tim and Russell are using to uh, uh, to begin the crowdsourcing experience. You should go give them some money. You should feel free to give them fifty, a hundred, or a thousand dollars because, as of right now, Woo! the yeah. um, the chances that it actually clears and eventually charges your credit card are slim. So 
no risk, high reward. Um, go out and make this happen. And then in a couple years, look for the buy the Orioles hashtag to go with the buy the Clippers hashtag. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much, Sam, Alan. Appreciate the time. Have a great night, sir. Cheers. Man, it would be really cool to be the part owner of the Los Angeles Clippers. Donate today, Baltimoreans. Donate today. Okay, that about wraps it up for this week's show. Um, oh, except Sam, there is something I forgot to mention. Again? Um, yeah. I-, I was coming home yesterday from work on the subway, um, and I suddenly started feeling really, really sick, like really nauseous and queasy. Um, I-, I thought it was just sort of like the motion of the subway, but uh, I-, I managed to keep it together until I got off the train, but then... This is a little disgusting. Sorry, Baltimoreans. I threw up a lot. And what do you know? There in the vomit on the ground on the sidewalk was this tiny plastic bag sealed with a note inside. Which it turns out means it's time for another installment of Where in the World is Intern Scott Diego? That's right. Somehow that nefarious scamp Scotty manages to take time from his post-high school jaunt around the globe to let us know where we made a boo-boo on last week's episode. Scotty writes... Hello from the Falkland Islands. Just wanted to drop you a line between taking hits of the spiritual jungle vine medicine of the upper Amazon known as ayahuasca to let you know that Sam's accents in the seventh inning sketch were alarmingly similar. The New York accent, fine, but a traditional St. Louis accent actually sounds more like this. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri in the United States, and here's how you say these in Midwestern dialect. Roll. Comfortable, orange, both, tour, toilet, sure, Newcastle, roof, coupon, super noodles or ramen noodles, uh, pecan, that's a little nut, by the way, uh, caramel, wash, New Orleans, crayon, envelope, coffee, Reese's Pizza, Reese's Pieces, and data. That's how you talk in St. Louis. Jeez. This drug thing is becoming an alarming trend in Scott's message recently. It, it really is. Also, really not sure how he managed to smuggle an audio clip into my digestive tract. Where, where, where were you eating lunch that day? <laughs> I brought it from home. <laughs> Questions wrapped inside of mysteries. <laughs> This program is written and produced by Sam Dingman and Alan Smith and featured music by Marshall York, Town Hall, Weather Report, Fish, and the Black Crows. We also welcomed our very special guests, Pat Jordan and Tim Nguyen. We'll be posting links to their work in the show notes. Seriously, do go over there. Check out Crowd Tilt. Get your money into the Buy the Clippers fund. Uh, like Tim said at the end of the interview, there is literally no risk. Uh, because the chances of us ever actually hitting $600 million are slim to none. So you can make a statement about how communities should be owning sports teams without having to worry about your credit card bill down the line. The campaign may fail, but the message will endure. What also will endure is our website, bemorons.com. Or go over and check us out on iTunes, where you can join the other moronic individuals who left us a review. And finally, check us out on Twitter. We are at bemorons. Alan Smith. I have a final question for you. Hit me. What would you call Henry Yerudia if he was attending a class on the basic structures of Western philosophy 
and made a particularly salient point about Plato and his legacy in regards to John Rawls and the theory of justice. Well, that's simple, Sam. He would be Henry That's Astute Rudia. And good night. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com.